The last couple weeks we were talking about renunciation and I wanted to remind us well why we were talking about that. So we started with the four foundations of mindfulness a few weeks ago. And if you remember, so we started with the body. We talked about the body postures and the elements. We did body scanning. We did uh, body part meditation. So we went through the whole process of breaking down the body and using the parts of the body as objects of meditation. And then we moved to the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana in the Pali, which is feelings. And then we talked about how in Buddhism, feelings are actually not what we call feelings usually, which is emotions, but feelings are actually the tones that are arising and passing away at the sense doors. So this is pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, or I think what's the actual translation is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, um, neutral sensations that happen when our sense doors get lit up. So food hits the tongue, sounds hit the ear, particles of light hit the eyes, and then there's an image, a taste, a sound, a touch, and the body, the heart mind says positive, negative. Do I like it? Do I dislike it? Or do I not care so much? So that's feelings. And we can use that in awareness to develop an incredible amount of wisdom because that is where craving and aversion and attachment arise, right? Those are the seeds of our suffering. So we have our body and then we have contact at the sense doors, which is our feelings, the Vedana. And then today we're going to move on to... Um, what we call mindfulness of mind. Now, the reason we did renunciation, if you recall, is that when we talk about positive, neutral, and negative or aversive sensations, we talked about worldly sensations and unworldly sensations. And the Buddha makes this distinction between happiness that's generated from the sense doors, right? Our sensory pleasures, and then happiness that's generated from spiritual practice. So one of the pleasures of spiritual practice comes from letting go, which is renunciation. So we spent a couple weeks on renunciation because that is considered a pleasure that is other than sense door contact. It's spiritual happiness, a happiness that's more satiating. It's a happiness that's not dependent as much on outside experiences. It's a type of happiness that's considered to be more satisfying than just the normal stimulation of TV and video and all the other types of things that we take part in in the sensual world. So that's why we took that detour. And nowadays, now that you've listened to those talks or we're here for those talks, um, you should like do a Snoopy dance when I say renunciation because you know that it's not losing something, that it's trading up for something. So I expect now that the term renunciation will delight you and not uh, strike fear in your heart as it might have before. So um, if you didn't catch those talks, you should check them out. We did a couple of them. So we're moving on to the third foundation of mindfulness, um, which is mind. Now, in the Dharma, mind, you know, the Buddha was very holistic and very integrative in the way that he was seeing the experience of what it was to be human. So it's not really just mind. It's heart mind. It's emotion and mind. It's emotions and thoughts is really what this category is. It's using thoughts and emotions as doorways to awakening and doorways for a deeper understanding of the nature of happiness, particularly long-term happiness, and looking at emotions and thoughts as a pathway to understanding the nature of suffering so we can let go of whatever those causes are. 
So even though it's mindful of mind, it's really mindful of heart mind. It's really being aware of thoughts and moods and also feelings, as we would call feelings, emotions. So that's when we start moving into the realm of emotions. One of the things I wanted to remind us about the four foundations of mindfulness, just to to help you with the framework. The reason we have four foundations of mindfulness and not seven foundations of mindfulness or two and a half foundations of mindfulness, the reason there's four foundations of mindfulness is the Buddha divided up the experience of body-mind into progressive categories. So the body is the least complicated on the surface, it's the easiest to bring into awareness. We can be aware of our hand. We can be aware of our nose. We can be aware of how we're sitting. These are large objects. So we start with the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the largest object, the easiest one to bring into awareness. And it's one that's always accessible. We can always get in touch with our body because we're rarely going anywhere without it. So it's easy to just bring awareness to the body. From the body, we move to the feelings. Feelings are a little more subtle. Liking, disliking, right? Pleasure, absence of pleasure, neutrality. These things are a little more subtle. It takes a little bit more concentration, a little more attention. And we also see that we can't notice pleasant and unpleasant and neutral if we haven't already grounded our awareness in the body because these sensations arise from our sense doors. So the body is the natural place to start. And then we move to a little bit more subtler experience, which is feelings. Now we're going to move to an even more subtler experience, something that's a little bit more rapid, a little more quick, which is feelings as emotions and thoughts, which tend to arise and pass away really quickly. Thoughts are really hard to catch in mindfulness, right? It really takes some time to be able to see the thoughts as they're arising. And emotions, you know how it is in a sit, like you could have 20 or 30 emotions can go by from the time you start breathing until the time the bell rings. You can start off relaxed and then you're feeling anxious and then there's some contraction or pain and then you're fantasizing about something in the past or thinking about the future. The mind is all over the place. So these categories that the Buddha created are progressive in the sense that they become more subtle and more, uh, in a sense, complex, right? Our moods and our emotions are far more complicated than, say, just my hand, right? Or even pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant sensations. So we start to see that we start with simplicity and we get down into more complex and subtle aspects of reality that we're bringing into awareness, So we've moved from the body and now we're in emotions. This is why the Buddha divides it up this way. It's for teaching purposes, but it's also a natural progression, right? It's a natural progression to start with the body and move upwards or downwards, depending on how you see it, to where we are now at emotions and thoughts. It's interesting to look at how, as Westerners, we have some cultural overlay when it comes to understanding feelings or emotions, which is a little bit different than the way we see it in Buddhist psychology. So I just wanted to call this out a little bit today as as an opener for what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks, because I think it's important for us to remind ourselves how we actually think of feelings oftentimes in the West. One of the ways in both Western philosophy and Western psychology 
we've conceptualized feelings is we often think of feelings as something that's happening inside. So there's this container that's the body and then we have this self that has feelings. So I am angry, right? I am angry, I am sad. So we have this sense that there's a self and inside here, this self gets to feel all these different feelings. It's almost like feelings are seen like, um, I don't know, like candy in a vending machine, right? You have all these different options of feelings and then there's this self that consumes these different feelings. I can feel sad, I can feel happy, but it implies that there's one self, this solid self, which we all know we don't have that in the Dharma, but in the West, it presumes we have this self that feels different feelings. The feelings are different, but the self is the same. So that's one way we approach this. The other thing that we tend to focus on or tend to inherit in the West is this mind-body separation. So it's almost as if we kind of think our behaviors are one thing and feelings are inside this container kind of separate. Now we know, of course, we know if we really think about it, that our physical actions and our behaviors are inspired by and activated by emotions, but we don't always think of that in the present moment, right? Oftentimes we have our actions and then we have our feelings and then there's this self inside that's kind of doing the work. And this is very much a Western view of mind-body separation and separation between feelings and behaviors. And the challenge with this Western view is that when we separate our feelings when we separate feelings and behaviors and we look at them as being really separate, we miss some of the real profound connection about the nature of suffering, the interconnectedness between our actions and our moods and our thoughts. We miss that connection when we separate it. Now in the Dharma, we look at it as interconnected and I'll explain how this works. For an example, I can, let me think if I can come up with an example. Here's a good example. When we say, see physical behaviors that we don't like in another person, we often request that they stop the behavior. So let's say there's hatred or some kind of violence, right? Or some kind of activity that we would like a person to stop, right? From a Western perspective, what we usually do is we address the behavior. We speak to the behavior and say, can you please stop behaving in that way? What we don't say or what we don't look at is what is the emotion that is being embodied in the behavior? What is the intention behind the behavior? So we don't look at that part. We tend to say, can you please stop doing the behavior? But we don't look at the emotion. We don't ask the person, how are you feeling when you're engaged in that activity that hurts me? We don't look at the intention and the, and the emotion behind the behavior. And when we don't see that connection, we end up making the mistake of thinking that if we change behavior, that changes the heart. That if we stop doing something that's harming, but we don't change the inner working, if we don't change the hate, if we don't change the prejudice, if we don't change the challenges inside emotionally, then the behaviors just return because they're interconnected. Our actions are so intimately connected with our emotions, that if we don't see them and really look at that integration, then it's hard to change or end the suffering. 
So this is something that we do often in the West. We separate the emotion from the behavior. Another example is the way that we we try to say um, we pass a law that regulates someone's behavior. But when we pass the law that changes the behavior, that doesn't necessarily change the heart, right? It doesn't necessarily touch the soul, so to speak. I use soul loosely. I know I'm among Buddhists here, so <laughs> I use the soul. It doesn't touch all the way down, right? It doesn't get in there. So if I'm now changing my behavior because I'm mandated to, that doesn't mean I don't have hate in my heart, right? That doesn't change the inner world. So in the West, we tend to look at the behavior as the target versus the emotion. Like, for example, the Dalai Lama once said, we really should be looking not at the consequences of our actions, but the emotions and the mood that preceded them. That's where we're going to end the suffering. That's where we're going to get free. And so in Buddhism, we look at our body, our actions, as an embodiment of these emotions, right? Heart and mind and body together as one. Where in the West, we tend to have a mind-body duality. We tend to separate the two, and we focus on behavior much more than we do emotions. Even in Western psychology, for decades, when cognitive therapy was so popular, we sort of abandoned looking at emotions. We got really into behavior in Western psychology. It's like we forgot that there was a heart involved in this whole process, right? And so in the Dharma, though, from day one, the Buddha could see through his practice, and we can see in meditation, that mind, heart, body, breath, all of these things are interconnected. And that by looking at this, we have an avenue to freedom that otherwise would be missed. We want to go down and get to the root of the suffering. Now, I'm not suggesting we don't pass laws to end behavior that harms. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying for long-term freedom, we have to look into the emotional part. And that's why this foundation of mindfulness is a part of our practice. So we can uproot the very source of the hatred, of the ill will, the unskillfulness, the unwholesomeness that we have in the human heart. So I wanted to give that framework because this is why this foundation is so utterly important, especially now. But it's just important because that's where the freedom comes in. Let me see. I want to do another framework here. Yeah, let me speak to this. I wanted to speak to the interconnectedness, interconnectedness just a little bit more. Because this is really important as well. When we use the four foundations of mindfulness for our freedom and for our liberation, one of the ways we do that is by looking at what we would refer to as the karmic conditions that arise and pass away. This is just the connections between things, right? So what we're looking at is the connection between the body and the breath and the mood and the thinking and really watching how these conditions feed each other, how they interconnect. We look for the patterns of karma that exist in each one of us. So when we look at these foundations, we can see them as a chain reaction, right? And we look inside ourselves to see where in this chain can we successfully intervene to free ourselves from the suffering? And I'll give you an example. Somebody says something negative, right? You get a negative comment somewhere. You get a negative email, say. You get an email, you open up the email, and it's criticizing you in some way. The email is read, so we have contact at the eyes, right? That's our sense door, contact. And then aversion arises, disliking. 
Someone says you're not good at something or you messed up on something. Aversion arises. Now, after the aversion arises, you might get a mood or an emotion. Could be sadness. Could be anger. Could be um, ill will towards that person, right? All kinds of different things in this chain reaction. And then you might find another connection, which is a thought might arise. Oh, they're right. I'm not good enough, right? I really suck at this. I can't believe I did that, right? The self-deprecating train pulls up, you hop on, door opens, and now you're on a ride and you're like getting down on yourself. Remember, this all comes from seeing something in an inbox on a computer. So we have this chain of events here that's now causing dukkha because the reaction is aversive. And we might get into a spiral where it starts with, you know, oh my God, I can't believe I messed up. Maybe there's some embarrassment or shame. And it ends up, you know, halfway into the day with I'm not lovable, right? Or I'm not good enough. And we know how this works, right? The mind starts chewing and it starts reacting. And before you know it, there's three different loops of negativity that are going on in the heart and mind. And then that feeds back and then there's more anger towards that person. How dare you say that about me? Because now we're defensive, right? And so the reason we use these foundations of mindfulness is so we can see this chain of events. Senses come in, sense input comes in, it hits the body, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Then there's reaction of thought and reaction of mind. And suffering occurs in these interconnectedness, right? So it's just something I wanted to point out is that these foundations of mindfulness are not independent. They're interdependent. We use them to see causality. We use them to see how our experience of suffering or our experience of happiness is being conditioned in the present moment. And as mindfulness becomes more clear, as awakening comes more online, we can catch these cycles as they arise and we can intervene, right? We can intervene. So in this case, as soon as we get the email, if we've got some really good mindfulness, we can watch the disliking arise and we can say, whoa, I'm really experiencing aversion to this email. I am not going to get down on myself. I'm going to intervene right here, right as the aversion, or right as the disliking comes in. I'm going to intervene and I'm going to choose to engage this person in a way that's skillful. So instead of falling into a self-deprecating loop where we're criticizing ourselves or feeling unworthy, feeling incompetent, we might just say to ourselves, oh my gosh, maybe this person is just having a bad day. Maybe this person just had a bad morning and they shot off an email and weren't even thinking about it. With mindfulness, we might be able to make that decision. We might be able to slow down the reactivity enough to intervene right there before the thoughts and emotions even come online. That is the benefit of looking at the four foundations as a chain reaction, as a chain of events. And it's our job to bring that chain of events into awareness so we can find a skillful place to intervene, so we can cut off the suffering before it arises. Or minimally, you know, if we're lucky, we cut it off after three negative thoughts instead of a half day of negative thoughts, right? We try to catch it as soon as we can. And you know how it is. It's challenging because once you get on that train, that train has left the station and like trying to get off 
is sometimes hard. It's like you're six stops later before you get off and can, can maintain your composure or regain your composure. So I wanted to just mention that because sometimes we see the four foundations as like these independent things, but actually they're taken as a set of chain reactions that we bring into awareness. And we do our best to try and catch the suffering as quickly as possible, as soon as we feel it arising in the heart and in the mind. I wanted to talk about knowledge for a second with the four foundations as a source of wisdom. So in the West, again, we have this idea, um, this sort of history we've inherited of know thyself. This idea that we are um, sort of on a journey of self-discovery, right? And part of this journey is to find out who am I? This is the big Western philosophical question, who am I? But in the Dharma, we take that question a little bit differently. Instead of asking, who am I? We bring awareness to what we experience and we say, what is this process that's arising? What is this process that's arising and passing away? What's inside here, right? We bring awareness to the body, the mind, feelings, thoughts, and we touch down on these things directly as a form of knowing. So we don't sit back and say, what am I? We bring awareness and we take it in and we feel and know through awareness what's happening. So it's this awareness of process in the Dharma where in the Western canon, it's more thinking about it. Like, huh, what am I? What am I in the world? What is it to be human? The Buddha says, if you want to know what it is to be human, ask yourself, what can you be aware of? What are you aware of in this moment? It's kind of a different way of going about it, but it leads to a similar place. So when we bring these four foundations into awareness, we get an intimate portrait of what's going on inside the human heart and the human mind. And what it ultimately tells us is how our experience is created, right? It tells us how the human being creates their present moment experience which is a very interesting thing if you think about it. It's not a conceptual exercise, it's an experiential exercise. So our four foundations are a way of asking the question, what am I? But instead of thinking about it, you bring awareness directly to the physical experience of what it is to be human. And that practice of bringing awareness and touching down intimately into those inner processes, those inner worlds that we have in the heart, in the mind, in the body, in the breath, is an incredible experience of self-knowledge, right? It awakens us to who we truly are. But instead of going out into a conceptual, sort of heady framework, we go in deep to an experiential one. This experience, of course, as you know, it makes us feel more alive right? We're in direct contact with what we feel. We're in direct contact with what we think. We become in direct contact with the cause of our suffering, the cause of our happiness. The ability to bring awareness to these foundations of mindfulness, not only does it create a deeper connection with ourselves, we can then take that deeper connection and bring it out into the world and connect deeper with others. So not only do we ask ourselves, you know, what am I? We then ask, how can I serve, right? How can I take my wisdom and say, how can I take this joy and happiness and bring it to others? 
So it's a very interesting similarity to sort of Western inquiry, but Buddhist psycho-spirituality has this really interest, interesting experiential aspect that is grounded in the four foundations of mindfulness. We use mindfulness to get in touch directly with how we live, how we love, how we show up in the world. And in doing that, there's a sense of freedom, right? Because we have a real sense of who we are. We have a real sense of being able to have a little more autonomy and a little more agency in how we experience our day-to-day -day, present moment uh, contact with the world. And so that's where our, our four foundations come in. And this is why I wanted to start off with these frameworks. So we kind of remember how we're coming. I always like to talk about kind of our inheritance when we come to these concepts, because I think bringing our inheritance into awareness allows us to let go of it a little bit more and to really see the powerful and profound, unique framework that the Buddha is actually offering here. It's quite different than what we're used to. Okay, a couple more things about the foundations of mindfulness. I talked earlier about this chain reaction that we're looking for, this cause of happiness and cause of suffering. So when it comes to emotions, I wanted to invite you to take on a task, so to speak. And I think these two tasks are really at the heart of using the third foundation for our awakening. The first one is to remember that mindfulness allows us to experience a deeper range of emotions. It allows us a bigger palette, right? A broader palette of experience. As mindfulness gets more refined, we can start to see that there's dozens and dozens of subtle feelings we can have moment to moment. We have these basic ones, right? Liking and disliking, and I'm happy and I'm sad and I'm anxious and I'm depressed. But then there's other mind states that we start to be aware of. We start to see things like, oh, there's a sense of expansiveness. There's a sense of contractedness. There's a sense of connectivity. There's a sense of disconnect. So we have what come online is a set of emotions which are deeper and more nuanced and more rich than just the basic emotions that are rising and passing away. And what I'm going to send out to you um, at the end of this talk, I'm going to send out to you an emotion list. And what you, you can do this on your own. I would highly recommend it. If you just type in emotion list, like Google it, you'll get a list of emotions, right? And I would encourage you to look over Find a list that speaks to you. There's dozens and dozens of these online. I'll send you a couple that I use. Um, but what, I, what you do with these emotion lists is you look at the list. And when you look down on the list, when you come across a, an emotion that lights you up, right, that hits your heart in a particular way, just take note of it. And what this is called is increasing emotional vocabulary, right? And by looking at a list of emotions, when we go in with mindfulness, you'll start to be able to use mindfulness to uncover a depth of emotion that you weren't privy to before. The reason I like to use the list is because what it ends up doing is it kind of gives the, it gives the mindfulness kind of a leg up, right? Because it takes a while for mindfulness to be concentrated in your practice. And depending on how often you're practicing or how long you're practicing, it can take a while to uncover some of these emotions. But if you know what you're looking for ahead of time, it's much easier for mindfulness to uncover some of these richer and more subtle emotions. When you're in touch with a deeper array of emotions, 
what happens is you're able to connect with yourself, right, in a more intimate way. You're able to express yourself more clearly to others, which means you'll get your needs met more effectively, more succinctly, more healthy. And so this is why this third foundation for me is so utterly important because it's not just being aware of emotions as they rise and pass away. It's discovering new and more subtle emotions that we haven't seen before because mindfulness just wasn't online. Mindfulness wasn't clear enough to see them. So I'm going to send you out a list after the Dharma talk. I'll post it in our Google, um, our Google Dropbox and then I'll send you the link. And I would highly recommend you just read down the list or Google a list that you like and take a look at the 20 or 30 emotions that you never even thought that you might be feeling and watch what happens when you bring awareness to them. The other thing I would highly recommend in regards to the third noble truth is this exercise. And I know we've talked about this before um, in various ways in reflections. But when I said earlier that in the West, we, we tend to think that we have a self and that singular self, that I, feels different emotions. But what's actually happening and the wisdom of the Dharma is that every time we experience an emotion, it's a different self. We have the optimistic self. We have the happy self. We have the sad self, the shy self, the outgoing self. Every moment when an emotion arises, there is a whole different way of being that arises with that emotion. And with mindfulness, we can see that when I'm happy, I tend to behave this way. When I'm sad, I tend to behave in this other way. When I'm greedy and clinging and selfish, I act like this. Different selves arise and pass away with each mood. Looking at emotions as different experiences is hugely helpful because what it reminds you is that every single one of us in this room, I can say, we know what it's like to be sad. But for each one of us, we have a uniquely sad self. We have a uniquely happy self. Like for some of us, when we're sad, we like to be social. Other people, when the sad self arises, we like to contract and be quiet and be alone, right? So each of us embodies our emotions differently. There's a different self that we show up as with each arising and passing away of emotion. So getting to know how you experience your emotions and really knowing the costume that that self wears when it's awakened and lit up in consciousness is hugely helpful. Hugely helpful to understanding the cause of suffering and the cause of happiness and how to let go of some of these more aversive experiences that we have rather than looking at it as a single self that sort of chooses these different flavors of experience. Think of it as different selves, each one with their own life, each one with their own energy. You know, when I get anxious, I like to walk. But I know other people, when they're anxious, they get withdrawn and they do other things like watch TV or read a book or do something else to eliminate the energy or to decrease the energy. And so I have an anxious self that does a particular thing. When I can get in touch with that, I can see the self arising. It's like, oh, my, my sad self, my anxious self, my depressed self is here. And when this self is here, this is how I show up in the world. Then we can get a real intimate relationship. It's almost like having a series of friends 
and you really want to take time to get to know each one of the friends. They might be similar, but you don't want to presume that each one is the same. Each one of these selves that you have has a different heart, a different way of thinking, a different way of being. And you honor who you are as a person by getting to know each and every one of them. And mindfulness of the third foundation is a huge way of being able to do that. And it's very helpful. It's very helpful. One of the things you can do, and I'll, I'll send out a list of questions uh, that you can ask yourself and you can explore what I mean by this. So you might ask yourself something like this. Uh, for example, when I'm happy, my friends will know it because when I'm sad, my friends would know that I'm sad because and what you're reflecting on is how do you show up? right? When I'm anxious, my kids will know because when I'm anxious, my partner will know because myself does this. I do a certain action, a certain behavior, a certain tone. And so you basically take an inquiry in this third foundation to get to know a deeper sense of emotional hue, right? It's a bigger palette of emotional experience. I find this uh, foundation of mindfulness to be hugely illuminating, Personally, I really enjoy this one um, a lot. And so what I will do is I will send out uh, a couple exercises around this for you guys and take a look at it and see as a reflection um, how it might be helpful to deepen your sense of the emotional self. Yeah, let's stop there. I think that's an overall good introduction of where we're going. Where we're going to be going in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the three unwholesome roots or the three poisons. And I didn't want to do those today. I wanted to give a broader introduction because I really want to deal with these other emotions really deeply. And it has to do with hatred, has to do with understanding anger and ill will. And I feel like we really need to do those justice by really diving deep into how Buddhist psychology looks at these really strong emotions and how we can get to know them, how we can manage them, how we can use them skillfully how we can reduce shame around having them when they do arise. So I want to do them their just due. So we'll go into those in the next few weeks. We might do one each week and just really dive in deep about how we, how we can get acquainted with these deep emotions and what kind of self shows up uh, when they arise. Okay, why don't we return to presence for two minutes or three minutes and uh, remind ourselves of our highest aspiration, why don't we? So we've been listening, listening and speaking, thinking, feeling. Take a deep breath and just return to body. Filling body with breath and awareness. Body sitting and body breathing. I am feeling gratitude for your presence here tonight and in my life. Thank you so much for coming. We come together like this to practice, to reflect, to be awake and aware. So we can be free, free from suffering. So we can cultivate a heart filled with compassion 
filled with joy and love and gentleness, filled with a desire to be kind and generous to others, to show up in the world with our highest aspiration that all beings be free. Our highest aspiration is for all beings to share in the merits of our practice. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings feel safe. May all beings feel loved and cared for, heard and understood. May all beings know true joy, true love, and true freedom in this lifetime. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from fear. May all beings be free from sickness. May all beings know comfort, care, love, companionship. May all beings know true happiness in this lifetime. May all beings know true happiness in this lifetime. Thank you, my friends, for being with me in community. Take care, my friends.